It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, July 3rd. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. Up first tonight, summer in the Golden State. The California report examines tourism as the temps get warmer. Then, National Native News looks at what's being done to combat Alaska's dwindling number of nurses. We've got a brief look at your local news and weather forecast. Some of KVMR's listening area have been experiencing recent power outages with this intense heat. Up ahead, KVMR's Felton Pruitt speaks to the director of Nevada County's Environmental Health Department. Felton asks, what do you do when the power goes out and you're stuck with a fridge full of food? We've got answers on tonight's newscast. This is the California Report, and I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. From time to time this summer, the California Report will take you to places in our state that will put you, we hope, in a summertime mood and give you some ideas for what you can do this season. Later in the show, for instance, we'll be talking about hiking. We'll also learn how people from all walks of life are spending their summer in the Golden State. But we begin by talking about the dollars and cents of California's tourism economy and how things are shaping up this summer travel season in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Joining me now to talk about how California tourism is faring is Carolyn Batetta, the president and CEO of Visit California, the nonprofit that promotes tourism in the Golden State. So, Ms. Batetta, how is the state's tourism market this summer? We're doing quite well. We're actually 93% recovered from 2019. So we're almost back. Uh, visitors in 2022 spent 134 point. $4 billion. And this year in 2023, we are very confident, probably even the summer, that we will surpass those 2019 numbers. And have any trend lines emerged in the California tourism industry? Maybe some of them relate to changes you saw during the pandemic. Well, what's really interesting about that is as horrific as the pandemic was for California's travel industry, what was interesting is Californians rediscovered California because people were not traveling overseas or even long haul. So I think that hopefully will stay with us. And I'd like to encourage our listeners to choose California this summer because it really helps communities and their fellow Californians. It's a lot easier to visit world-class destinations right in your backyard than passports and flight delays and misconnections, et cetera. And can you talk about just the intensity of the tourism industry? I imagine California is always in competition with places like Florida, Hawaii, and some destinations abroad like the UK and Australia. And that rivalry for capturing tourists and their money can be pretty cutthroat. My word, not yours, but am I right? I'll, I'll, I'll borrow that. It's definitely cutthroat. And California is a global destination. We're the number one travel destination in the United States. We're actually one and a half times the size of the Florida tourism economy and five times the size of the Hawaiian tourism economy. So to your point, we are competing globally, head to head with Australia, Europe, et cetera. So it is very cutthroat. Destinations like Florida have highly invested in bringing visitor dollars to their destination. And likewise, we are doing the same. That was Carolyn Batetta of Visit California, the nonprofit charged with promoting tourism in the Golden State. 
And now the California Report's Keith Mizuguchi takes us outdoors and learns about the best places to hike in the Golden State. Keith talked to Chris Hazard, an author and professional hiking guide who's known as the Hiking Guy. In your opinion, what are some of the best places to explore when it comes to hiking in California? There is so much to explore in California. I mean, we have so many different diverse ecosystems here, everything from the Southern Cascades all the way down to the Sonoran Desert, Joshua Tree, the Mojave, coastal ranges. I mean, you can just take your pick of what you want to do here. Obviously, we have the national parks like Yosemite, but there's also great options like national forests that don't get so crowded as national parks and just offer basically the same types of scenery. You mentioned national parks. I think that's what a lot of people think of when they think of outdoors in California. But there are some challenges to actually getting to the national parks and booking time to go there, right? Yeah, well, the national parks have been instituting a permit system basically to address overcrowding. So in places like Yosemite now, you need to get a timed permit just to visit the park, not even to do like a hike like Half Dome or something. So you just have to check before you go. What about for people who might not be experienced hikers? What are some of your tips on how best to kind of traverse trails, parks uh, in California? Yeah, if you're just starting, it's really about preparation. So an important thing to do is when you do find a trail or hike that you want to do is just share that with somebody, a loved one, and let them know you're going to do it and you're going to be back at a certain time. Because if some reason you get lost or you get caught out after dark, maybe roll an ankle or something, That's the common thing. People get lost. They roll an ankle. It's usually not catastrophic. We've talked a lot on this show about this year's massive snowpack. And, uh, you know, it's ended a lot of the drought restrictions across the state. But it's also providing some concerns for people who do enjoy the outdoors. What are some tips for people who might be going in areas that could see flooding, could see high water and fast-moving water uh, where they're hiking. So the first thing you should do is check with the park and make sure that it's open. And when you actually do hike, just be aware that the stream crossings will probably be a little more intense than normal. For a lot of people, having trekking poles will help cross streams. And if you ever feel like you can't cross a stream or it looks too dangerous, just turn around and go back. Do you yourself have any sort of favorite hiking trips, hiking spots that maybe are off the beaten path? Yeah, I love to go to uh, national forests. Down here in Southern California, we have San Bernardino National Forest. We have 11,000 foot peaks there. You know, in the center of the state, you can go to Inyo National Forest. There's a great hike, Cottonwood Lakes. You don't need a permit for it. It's beautiful alpine lakes. It's right next to Mount Whitney. So, you know, always just look for a national forest if you can't get into a national park. There's a ton of great gems out there. That was Chris Hazard, a professional hiking guide. You can find out more on his website, hikingguide.com. Chris, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, comprising its School of Medicine and adult and children's health systems, working together to advance knowledge and improve lives. StanfordMedicine.org. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. 
And that is the California Report for Monday, July 3rd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. Tonight's National Native News takes us to Alaska, where attempts are being made to combat a nursing shortage crisis. Details ahead. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Alaska Pacific University received a nearly $3 million grant from the Department of Labor to improve and diversify rural and tribal health care. This is in response to Alaska's nursing shortage. The university partnered with organizations in Bethel, a city of 6,000, that's a majority Yupik, to offer a licensed practical nursing program. As KYUK's Sunny Bean reports, nine students have graduated so far and more to come. The new nursing program is rigorous, and many students have to travel for hours on snowmobiles or take multiple flights to get to clinicals and exams. They have families, they have lives, they have jobs, they have a lot of things, a lot of responsibilities. That's Marianne Murray, Director and Professor of Nursing at Alaska Pacific University. The majority of nurses in the U.S. are white women, but not in this program. Diane Droutman, the coordinator of the LPN program, says the scheduling is different, too. She and a Bethel-based partner designed a one-week-on and one-week-off schedule. And she was like, we can do that? And I went... We're starting the program. We can do whatever we want. (laughs) They also split up the program. So instead of completing a three to four year degree in one go, students can start with the six to nine week course load. Then they can work. Then they can go back to get the next degree. If there's one thing I've realized since living in Alaska for the last, what, 12 years now, it's that you have to pretty much grow your own, especially if you want people to stay. Murray says there's a roadmap to building a homegrown Alaskan nursing corps. That means increasing faculty and partnerships so they have access to clinical environments to teach in. APU also wants to teach cultural safety, a framework developed for health equity for Native people in New Zealand. It's challenging for APU to operate in the bush. At times, they have no water and internet drops. So they give thumb drives with slides, hard copy backups of exams, and now they're getting high-fidelity simulation mannequins, for which they're planning to record elders speaking in Yupik for simulations practicing overcoming language barriers. In Bethel, I'm Sunny Bean. The Little Free Library, which provides boxes and books to communities, is working to expand its Indigenous Library program. Talia Miracle, Little Free Library program manager, is leading the initiative. She says the program grants library boxes and books to Indigenous communities in the U.S. and Canada. In some of these areas, book access is really limited. And so the goal of the program is to provide more book access, um, to strengthen the community, to inspire readers, and then support um, positive literacy outcomes. The libraries and books are granted through an application process. Those accepted in the program receive a library box to build or a fully assembled one and a bundle of books. We start off the library with 50 books. So 25 of those are written by BIPOC authors, and then the other 25 um, are either written by Indigenous authors or they center the Indigenous experience. Um, So we bring really high-quality books uh, into the community through this program. Miracle says not only is it important for Indigenous communities to have books they can relate to, but also to offer different levels of books 
for readers. I think it's also important for kids to see their parents reading as well. Um, so we provide uh, multi-age books in this bundle. You know, we just know that having books in the home supports literacy outcomes, um, and then it supports better outcomes for the rest of your life. Applications can be found online at littlefreelibrary.org. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Nobody likes a crowded highway. A crowded crib is even worse. For a safe night's sleep, use a fitted sheet only and be sure there are no toys, blankets, or pillows around your baby. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Ready to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help with advice and resources. See what SBA can do for you. Go to sba.gov start. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at your local news. Last Thursday, Governor Gavin Newsom and state fire officials were at the Grass Valley Air Attack Base to highlight new technology being deployed ahead of peak fire season. The governor's communication team says that in addition to having the largest aerial firefighting fleet in the world and the most firefighters in state history, California is deploying new tools, including AI, satellites, cameras, drones, and real-time intelligence to fight fire faster and smarter. Both a Fire Integrated Real-Time Intelligence System, or FIRIS, mapping plane and a new Firehawk were on display at the Grass Valley Air Attack Base event. They are now part of the state's toolkit to rapidly assess and contain wildfires. The Fire Integrated Real-Time Intelligence System, or FIRIS, program, which started in 2019 in Orange County under the leadership of Chief Brian Fennessy, provides real-time intel to ground crews responding to wildfires. Starting July 1st, FIRIS will be jointly operated by Cal OES and CAL FIRE through the state's Fire and Rescue Mutual Aid System on all hazards incidents. The capability to rapidly map a fire, detect possible spots outside the control lines, combined with infrared cameras that map every single hotspot, will be added to the current firefighting resource arsenal. FIRIS then sends the mapping data to UC San Diego's supercomputer, where predictive models analyze the current fire and send probability of spread back to the intelligence system and the incident commander on the fire. This allows for resource request decisions to be made faster. Engines, hand crews, equipment, or aerial assets can be dispatched immediately. If evacuations are needed, this gives agencies more time to send emergency notifications and get residents out safely. CAL FIRE Unit Chief Brian Estes, whose Nevada Yuba Placer Unit hosted the event, gave a tour of the Emergency Command Center located at the Interagency Command Center. He says Thursday's theme was twofold. Quote, one was about the convergence of proven technologies and emerging technologies in our response. The second part was really about the technology in here and the men and women who are committed to advancing our mission in fire and emergency services. 
The Grass Valley Command Center is a place that is often picked because we're robust, we're busy, we have a high call volume, and we're a very professional operation. The Grass Valley Command Center processes over 71,000 emergency calls annually and provides dispatch services to nearly 30 agencies throughout Nevada, Yuba, Placer, Plumas, and El Dorado counties, including Sierra Nevada Ambulance. This reported by Ubinet. As of Saturday, July 1st, Rough and Ready Fire Station 59 is fully staffed. Through a cooperative staffing agreement, Penn Valley Fire Protection District and Nevada County Consolidated Fire District will provide coverage for area residents 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Rough and Ready residents were at risk of losing not just their fire department, but homeowners' fire insurance as well. The joint staffing is the first step in a possible reorganization of Penn Valley, Rough and Ready, and Nevada County Consolidated into one fire district. Now let's take a look at your local forecast from the National Weather Service. Well, you survived the worst of the heat, for now at least. Temperatures for the near future are forecast trending down, so it'll only get cooler from here for the time being. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight clear with a low around 65 degrees. The 4th of July will be sunny with a high near 90. Tuesday night will be clear with a low around 65. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight clear with a low around 50 degrees. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 83. Tuesday night will be mostly clear with a low around 51 degrees. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight clear with a low around 59 degrees. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 95. Tuesday night will be clear with a low around 58 degrees. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Intense heat brings the possibility of wildfire and power outages, which some in our listening area have already had to contend with. Up ahead, KVMR's Felton Pruitt asks, What do you do when the power goes out and you're stuck with a fridge full of food? Stay tuned for answers. We've got Amy Irani with us. She's the director of Nevada County's Environmental Health Department. And Amy, we wanted to talk about what you do when the power goes out and you've got all this food in your refrigerator and freezer and how long it's going to last. So uh, let's dig into that. Uh, Thank you, Felton. It's a pleasure to be here. Usually when there's a power outage, a lot of folks sometimes have uh, upright or chest freezers, and they have their refrigerators. And the main objective is to, if you had space in your freezer and things that you, you could save, you could allocate them there, but you don't want to keep those items open. Uh, the best thing to do is just keep them closed and not access them very long. Now, let's just say your power's out for an extended period of time, God forbid, and it's a, it's a couple of days without a generator to keep your refrigerator running and or your freezer in your refrigeration unit, it would be recommended that any kind of leftover meals, you know, if you had something and you had leftovers, or if you had opened kind of deli meat or something of that nature, you would want to discard those. You just don't want to run the risk of anything being out of temperature. When I say out of temperature, most household refrigerators keep the temperature below 40 degrees. And so as it rises, you run the risk of pathogen growth. Right. And then obviously in the freezers, it's 32 and below there. You bet. And hopefully if you have a really good seal on your freezer, on the door, it'll maintain, you know, that temperature over a day 
But then as soon as you can get it back, plugged back in, that would be that would be the best scenario. So let's go through a thing. Last weekend, I lost power on Saturday for 18 hours into Sunday. So I took a lot of stuff out of my refrigerator and I put mm-hmm. it in a cooler. And then I had, mm-hmm. I had frozen all of these yogurt containers in my freezer and I put them in the cooler and the cooler stayed nice and ice and cold for the whole 18 hours that the power was off. Then I put everything back in the refrigerator and everything was fine. If you can mm-hmm. think ahead like that, I guess that's one way to, to go by or just be able to put ice in your refrigerator. I mean, maybe go to the store and then come back and throw it in your refrigerator and use it as a big cooler. You could. That would help to keep the temperature cool. I guess the main thing is, and you that was very smart, you had pre-planned, so you had water containers that were frozen, which helped to maintain that temperature in your cooler. And then you were able to pack your perishable foods in there, milk, cheese, you know, your, your meats and such, which is a great idea. You absolutely can do that, and that would prolong the time you can have these foods to, to reuse. It, it just depends on how long, right? So as you're, as you're filtering this ice through, it, it's not going to be over a few days unless you have a really awesome Yeti-type cooler that can hold those temperatures for three to five days then you might be running into some question as to what you can save. Let's say your power goes out for four or five hours one day, and then it comes back. Mm-hmm. So you said your, your freezer, as long as you don't open it, that's good for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. How about the refrigerator? The power just went out. I've got my refrigerator door closed. How long can that last before you start worrying about the food inside? You know, it, that's a great question. It also depends on the age of your refrigerator. If you have something that maybe has degraded seals, that rubber seal when you close the refrigerator, that's all going to depend on the integrity of how how cold it will keep your temperature in in the refrigeration unit. What about for commercial places, like you have a restaurant and their power goes out for three or four hours? Is it pretty much the same thing with their refrigeration and freezing? If they kept the refrigeration units closed, didn't access them during that time frame, most of the products would be okay. It would be anything, again, that they had, they had cooked the day before, they cooled, put it back in their refrigeration unit to reuse or reheat. Those would be the items we may suggest uh, you want to discard those. Can you recommend a website where you could get a lot of this information about temperatures and how long food will last? Sure. We have some information on our website at, at uh, www.mynevadacounty.com, and you go to the Environmental Health Department. We have some good information in our FAQ library that we have on our website. There are other sites you can access uh, the, um, the FDA, www.fda.gov, and they have some good information on refrigeration safety and things you can do from a homeowner's perspective on safe food handling and separation, things like that. All good information, and hopefully we won't even need to use it, but uh, we have a long, hot summer coming our way, so we'll find out. Let's hope, Felton. Thank you so much. That's Amy Irani. She's the director of Nevada County's Environmental Health Department. You stay cool, and we'll do the best to do the same. Thank you, Felton. You do the same. That's our newscast for Monday, July 3rd. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and North Columbia Schoolhouse Cultural Center presents the 36th annual Sierra Storytelling Festival, July 7th and 8th. 
featuring storytelling by a diverse group of tellers, including a special local teller, Friday workshop, children's story hour, and more. Information, sierrastorytellingfestival.org. Support for KVMR's Future of Radio project comes from AJA Video Systems, empowering the next generation of local journalists and broadcasters. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.